0: It'll be good practice for us. We're, we're interrupters together. Welcome back to Dance Cast. I'm Sima Belmar, your host, ODC writer in residence. Today, I am speaking with Raisa Simpson, an African American Filipino choreographer and artistic director of the San Francisco-based Push Dance Company. Raisa is amazing. I know it's my favorite word, but it's also true. She's a graduate of SUNY Purchase. She danced with Robert Moses Kinn and Joanna Highgood Zako Dance Theater. And you are going to hear about her current project, which is a BIPOC sanctuary in the Soma District of San Francisco, among other things. Before we get to the interview, the ODC calendar. Reserve your tickets for ODC Theater's fall season. Featuring performances and digital experiences by Christy Funch, Ink But With Ann Carlson, Chitra Institute, Amy Seward's Imagery, Kinetech Arts, and Raw Dance at odc.dance slash calendar. We had a conversation before this conversation that then led to an email and then another email about things that you want to talk about and projects that are really most exciting to you, most forward in your thinking and where you are. But before you do that, if you can give listeners a sense of sort of your background, okay. dance and otherwise.
1: Oh, my background. When I arrived here in the Bay Area, I started working with Robert Moses Ken and then Joanna Highgood, Saco Dance Theater. And I'm probably most well known for being artistic director of Push Dance Company, which is now in its 16th. Season, and it's it seemed like you know such a like experiment when I started it, and to see it grow into a sixteen-year-old organization—that's just a shock.
0: Where did you come from before the Bay Area? I'm always curious about that.
1: You know, I'm a daughter of the Great Migration, and also I'm a daughter of an immigrant mother from the Philippines. So I um, started sort of like traveling from the Cleveland, Ohio area where I was born to Texas and then landed in San Jose. And then um, I did my undergrad in New York. Then I came back and I stayed. Yeah. So I don't know if I'm a transplant. I'm just all about migrating.
0: Yeah. I asked that question also because I'm always interested in the ways, the places we come from have influenced our dance training, which is the next thing I want to hear a little bit about when the dancing started and what the training is, because for example, in a recent podcast, I was talking with my guests about our training histories and I talked about mine being like this average history of just like ballet, tap, jazz in the studio and then these sorts of things. But when I think about it now, that same, that same story in Brooklyn, in the neighborhood that I grew up in will be different than in Los Angeles or San Francisco or Amarillo, Texas, even if it still has those same dance genres, those boxes ticked, just the style of studio, the kind of space you're in, the kind of teachers you have, the kind of people you're dancing with, the expectations. So if you want to just give us a little bit about that, I would love to know.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. I I didn't think about dance as training. Dance was always around in my household. And so when I think about people saying, well, where did you train? And, you know, what have you done? I'm always kind of laughing inside. It's just like, you know, we always danced. We always made up our own dances. We always put the cardboard on the grass and started breaking. So that was always around, you know, music from the 70s was always around. My father was a musician. I mean, you know, it was just like a part of life and a way of living. So, you know, I I was a quiet person. In fact, I still don't talk. And when I do talk, it shocks people. My mom, she put me into dance because she said, do you want to dance? Because I obviously didn't speak. And I just nodded my head quietly. Like, I don't think that she was thinking, wow, you know, race is going to get classical training. She just thought, well, she's going to go to dance classes and, you know, make friends and have a good time. So she took me to you know in San Jose what probably was one of few dance studios per se that had you know everything in it and um, you know it couldn't have been more artistically rigorous it was a chiquetti ballet dance studio and it also had flamenco and jazz dance and my teacher was very serious about the training whether it be you know jazz flamenco or ballet she's very serious You know, she was the type of teacher that carried the stick around. That's kind of like where my dance training sort of blossomed. And I was one of those kids that had like the facility for dance. I mean, I was, they used to call me ostrich arms in my ballet class because my arms were so skinny. I was one of those kids that I I didn't know that I had the facility for it um, until later in my life, but I blended in quite well into like this European aesthetic of dance. I didn't decide to be a dancer until I was 16. So I was still taking it off and on here and there. And then finally at 16, I was like, you know I think I might wanna do this. And my mom, you know, just being an immigrant there was just no way that I was going to just be an artist. I was starting to go to a school where the director kind of not, not really tried to get everybody to do homeschooling, but hinted that if you wanted to do this seriously, you should do homeschooling. And she was just like, no way you're going to college. So I went as far as away, away as I could in New York. I just had to get out of San Jose. That's all I could think of.
0: Yeah. That, that was my thing. I was in New York and I was like, how far away can I get from here, uh, not because New York was bad, but you can imagine. And I only got as far as Wisconsin the first time, but then I kept pushing west. Yeah, you, you said something in the beginning of answering that question that really helps me just to think about my language, this language of training, because I don't, I certainly no longer if I ever did, but I definitely do not now subscribe to some idea that there's like real dance over on the side of studio training and the other stuff that you learn growing up in your family or in the street or in the clubs is somehow lesser uh, of a practice. I don't believe that. But my, but the language I use to ask the question suggests that that I do or that I have that division or somehow that your, your path of a dancer doesn't start in some way until you get that official stamp from like your stick-wielding Chiquetti teacher or something like that. <laughs> so that's really helpful to me. I'm glad you said that. And I think part of why I asked you in particular that question using the word training is because of what I know about push and what I know about the emphasis on concert dance, right? Which makes that, even though there are other forms certainly that are being staged, I mean, always I think about Rennie Harris and hip hop and various, obviously the Ethic Dance Festival stages everything and none of it is often thought of as concert dance. That's a whole other can of worms, but so- Tell me a little bit about PUSH.
1: Well, yes, concert dance. I mean, that's what we're all sort of striving for, right? To be in front of an audience. And I mean, I learned such at an early age that you really have to dance for yourself. So I had some really great teachers that sort of instilled that. You could train or run away from your training. No matter what we're doing, you know, we're always training, whether it be, you know, something from the African diaspora, in terms of dance or, um, wherever type of diaspora, we're always constantly training in it. And so, you know, what push is, is definitely, I think categorized as concert dance, but yet still, you know, in the process, we are, um, really driving towards tradition and ritual. Now, I don't want to take the word traditional because that can really mean something, but I feel like you know, being African American tradition is constantly evolving, and we're constantly sort of making this circular like loop. You know, it's not a historical, it's not a political, it really sort of goes back to the past and then, you know, returns in the present, but it's kind of renewed. It's sort of renewed in a way that, you know, hearkens to the future. So I think that pushes all those things that I've tried to get away from. And when I first started the company, I thought that you know I really had to be that stick-loading Chiquetti teacher. I mean, I was a horrible director. Not that I didn't take care of people in the room, but I was really, you know, hard on myself and hard on the people in the room. And I think that at some point I just took a step back and looked at everybody and even like looked at myself in the mirror finally and just said like, if we're not enjoying this, why are we here? Why am, I, why am I putting on, you know, all this pressure? Why am I putting this pressure on people in order to reach this level of professionalism that nobody can attain? So at one point I just finally, Let go of a lot of different things that I had learned and started to unlearn, especially when it came to how I treated people in the company. I think that I finally just said, look, I'm not interested in dance if this is what it is, if this is how we define it. So that was that was sort of um, a turning point. I don't I don't know what the turning point really was, but at some point it hit rock bottom for me. And I made a a flip and a switch.
0: What did, did rock bottom look like? Just feeling crappy all the time, or just feeling angry a lot, or or did it? Were did you actually get feedback from the people you were working
1: with? No, I think everybody was scared at me at that point, and it felt silly. It felt pretty silly. I was bad. I was doing some bad stuff, but I was doing something that. I felt as though every other director was doing, and in some ways that was true, right? I mean, directors, we get away with throwing tantrums, we get away with playing mind games and talking about people. We try to instill a level of competition in the room, that everybody's sort of competing for our attention, and they want to be seen. It's sort of the mental load that we as dancers go through, that we have to toughen up and we not only have to be the best dancer in the room, but we have to be able to take the abuse that is given to us. So I just went the route of saying, one, I'm gonna be a nice person. And two, I'm gonna hire nice people in the room. And just go from there and see what happened. And as soon as I did that, I was just not only happier, But I think that I was artistically more fruitful. All of a sudden I could sort of mentor people and help people and still work on myself at the same time. My stress level went down. Everybody else's stress level went down in the room. I was trying to really just make dances. And what I really needed to do was just make environment. I needed to make an atmosphere that everybody wanted to come to work every day because they were excited to be there.
0: It makes me think about the fact that I have long blamed Debbie Allen and fame for this uh, mentality, even though the mentality definitely preceded that. That was my biggest influence. My passion when I was young was fame, the television show in particular. Cause you know, the movie, even the, the movie came out when I was nine and you know, it's not quite appropriate for a nine-year-old. So I'm not exactly sure when I saw it, I might've seen it then, but like, you know, the famous quote about if there's no pain and sweat, you know, then whatever. And so as a, as a young dancer, I was, didn't like pain or sweat. And so I figured I couldn't be a dancer, like, because if it wasn't Leroy, it was nothing. (laughs) But I wonder what, what you're just saying, it actually leads a little bit possibly to what you mentioned to me you want to talk about. So I'm just going to read back to you what you said, which was, I think I'd like to focus my experiences, obstacles, and joy around being a woman of color artist in our July interview.
1: Okay, look, I'm going to come on the show and just, you know, start ranting, but I won't do that because I want to leave space for humility and just being able to share a story. Which is great, but also feel free to leave space for ranting. If it comes up, I will. And and maybe this is, you know, another thing that I just need to journal about but I didn't know what misogyny was until I became a director and being a woman of color I didn't realize how people were you know relating to me as a woman of color and I've had many a collaborator that you know I just had a lot of tension with and at the time I was working a lot with male artists in particular, men artists in particular, that, you know, just were very unabashedly sexist and told me about it in, in many ways. And as somehow as a director of a company, I thought I was like above that and didn't have to deal with it because it's a power of position also. So, I mean, that experience of, you know, walking into a setting or being in a room and just being you know, the only person that looked like me. It made for you know, a very lonely existence at times. And it wasn't you know, just relegated to some of my male collaborators, even some of my white women colleagues just did not want to understand my experience. Is that, is that a way to say it? I would, I would more or less say didn't have to, go through that experience which is so funny because we're both underserved we're both under that category of under-resourced and overlooked but yet they just felt as though I should have some qualifiers and, and be able to quantify and when you're in such like only person on an island existence it's like how do you go through the explanation of trying to explain all of that you know the totality of being a woman, being Black, being Asian, and people coming up with assumptions, I think, about you. I still go through it. It's not like it's disappeared because of where I am or who I am. It's not surprising. I mean, it's just not surprising at this point. I would say that definitely talking about this, is kind of funny because in the back of my mind, I have this colleague of mine who's always like, well, what did you do? or why don't you do something? <laughs> it's just so funny because I'm just like, well, I, I am uh, <laughs> It's just having to explain it again. So
0: having to explain what exactly. I'm a little lost, I mean maybe I'm sure you probably don't want to name names and get specific, but what's this I want to know what what that explanation looks like if you want, but also, it's just making me think, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw's concept of intersectionality, I think will never not be crucial to these conversations. And so when you talk about your white female colleagues and go, you know, we have these things in common, like we're we're both underserved. We're both subject to misogyny and sexism. But if that colleague is not seeing that part of your identity as primary, if they're looking at rice and thinking black or Asian before they're thinking woman, right, then that will cut into the ability to, I don't know, have empathy or recognize similarity or any of that, seems to me.
1: You know, that's what kind of gives me pause, is when it comes to minorities, particularly Black people, yes, there is intersectionality, but there's also sort of this Ownership that other people have over your identity, right? It's like they get to define what you are, and they get to define how much diversity is around in the space. So I think that yes, not being able under to understand is really, you know, sort of about not wanting to take ownership of the position that one is coming from when they hear somebody else speak, because which is so interesting to me because intersectionality is about listening. And if somebody tells me, you know, hey, Raisa, this is my experience. I don't sit there and say, well, what did you do? (laughs) How are you going to get out of it? How are you going to lift yourself out of oppression? I think my first thought is to think about how I'm positioned in the conversation, what I can do personally. And then from there, ask this person how to support. So those are the things that I'm kind of talking about. And this is so unspoken, because a lot of women of color don't really speak their experience or point towards other people as having a lack of compassion or empathy, because it just comes with so much retaliation on the other side, just to say, obviously you're not doing anything right. The backlash is you're not doing the work. You're not working hard enough. You're not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps.
0: Right. No, the onus is always on the individual. It gets thrown right back onto the individual. And it's very much what Jocelyn Mathis-Reed wrote about in the last issue of In Dance, very much about the difficulty in in voicing these experiences as a Black woman dance educator, even in the Bay Area where we're supposed to be in the like epicenter of wokeness, right? That it it took something of her to be able to say it out loud because of that retaliative, critical response that she was used to getting and that it sounds like you're describing.
1: You know, when I do get those responses and I do you know, try to work through them is that basically we're still institutionalized. You know, we talked about dance training, that's an institution in itself. And so are these different conversations. And so the conversation only gets so far, because we have built, you know, the standard in the institution and professionalism around, again, just taking the abuse and not speaking up against it people feel like if you mention your pain and suffering, that somehow you're taking away from theirs, which isn't the case. It's just that you are letting people know this is the experience, this is where we are. And also, let me just clarify, let me just clearly state that San Francisco is extremely anti-Black. I mean, without a doubt, I've been all over the country, and this is the most anti-Black part of the country I've been in. It's it's amazing. It's wonderfully diverse. It has a lot of culture and everything to offer, but it also has a very different level of experience for Black people. How do I know that? Well, because Push Dance Company has spent the better amount of its years in communities like Bayview, Hunters Point, and like the Fillmore Western Edition, speaking to people, talking to people. And as a longtime resident of San Francisco, I can attest to what, you know, these folks are saying. So let's just be very clear that, you know, when you look and go into the institutions, how many young black dancers do you see? They are out there and you don't see many. So I think that, you know, when you ask me like what push is, I think that, you know, that's another part of what we're trying to do is just to, provide access to dance. Dance has been turned into something that categorically hasn't ever been attainable for black bodies. And I can add in there black and brown bodies as well.
0: I think it speaks so much also to the sort of invisibility slash hypervisibility of the black bot dancing body. I think I've mentioned Brenda Dixon gotcha more than once, but I think that, you know, there's something about, I'm what, the reason why I'm saying that is because I can hear certain listeners be like, what is she talking about? You know, there's so many black dancers, like everybody wants to emulate black dancers. And even in concert dance, you know, I, I, hear it because, because this is the kind of conversation I have with people with white people who have, have, have absorbed some idea that now they have no chance at all of getting any institutional funding, and then because of efforts toward racial equity. But then, when you keep looking at the grant cycles and who's getting funding, it's, that's not bearing out.
1: I always joke because you know people are like, "Wow, you're getting you know funded." I'm like, "Yeah, but it's like fifty dollars. Like, I, I love it. Thank you so much." <laughs> but you know, um, and somebody else pointed it out to me once. They're like, "Raisa, you got some funding, but it's like significantly less than these other groups, companies, institutions. And I was like, that is so true. Why are we at the bottom? You know, why are we crabs in a barrel just trying to like step over each other to get this money? And so at one point I stopped applying for certain things in terms of the funding cycle, but let me just go back a little bit because something you said just you know made me think about um, diversity in the you know the dance community. And when I arrived here, that was like the driving word was diversity. But really, I really found what people had was tokenization. And I think that for uh, the dance community, maybe in the San Francisco area, because I I live here, I don't know about. Other San Francisco Bay Area counties. But I think for them, they think that that is actually diversity. They think tokenization is diversity, and it is not. And I think that, you know, our funding and our grant makers have always sort of relied on the more established, the longest running groups with the most money to fix this problem of diversity. So, you know, when you talk about push versus what other organizations have been around are doing, we have always been diverse because <laughs> that's how it started. It started out with me. And of course, at the time, I also have to say that, you know, I was tokenizing my group as well. And then at one point, I was like, ah, I just don't see this going the way it's going to go because really we're telling stories about people of color. And you know, I'll be honest, actually in a process, I'll go back. I asked a group of dancers, what do you know about mixed race, mixed heritage? And everybody in the room was like, nothing. And so at that point I had to step back and say, well, you can do the work, like you're a great dancer, but you can't do the work because you can't work with community. You can't work with people that come from different cultures, come from different races and backgrounds. So at that point, I started to really focus on working with people that could deal with the sort of issues that I was working with. I basically asked people up front now and asked them, can they tell me their own story? And if a dancer cannot tell me their own story, then I know that they cannot relate to somebody else's.
0: So, there's an expectation of a certain amount of self reflexivity for your dancers.
1: Yeah. And, you know, if somebody doesn't know the name Brenda Dixon Goschow, that's also, I mean, I won't kick them out of the company, but they should know (laughs) who broke, you know, the story on all of this, who finally said, our dance community has sort of invisibilized Black dance for so long, as well as other cultures for so long and culturally appropriated from other cultures for so long that when they actually acknowledge it, people are just gasping and clutching their pearls. And when she said it, you know, she was ostracized for many years and by so many different people. But these are things that Balanchine, Beethoven, all the way to a lot of quote unquote classical artists have said that they do that they take from other cultures, in particular, Black culture.
0: Yeah. Well, it leads me to want to hear about the second email you sent me about what you wanted to talk about,
1: which was <laughs>
0: the BIPOC sanctuary.
1: Yeah. Okay. So obviously you've heard my story of being in the Bay Area, and it's terrible. You <laughs> know? Oh. I've been running away from this community. But no, I, I did for the good 10 years of my career, I kind of like hid myself away from studios. Let me just say this. I've been going to Alonzo King Lions Dance Center since I was 16. And I think I've been kicked out of there twice. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I started I started going there once I decided I wanted to be a professional dancer at 16. So, I mean, I, I definitely love this dance community and you know I'm gracious towards it and want to support. But I had to step away because I needed to just be able to clear my head and form my own way of working. I didn't want my dance lineage to really get in the way of what I wanted to achieve with Bush. And I started working at the African American Cultural Complex, which even some Native San Franciscans don't even know that building is there. It's off of Webster and Fulton. And it's so funny because they have two dance studios and um, actually a colleague of mine, Robert Henry Johnson, brought me over there and he's a former ODC dancer.
0: I have to interrupt you. Just the other day, I was thinking about Robert Henry Johnson because I remember in the early days of writing for The Guardian, and I just was thinking about what an extraordinary dancer he is and wondering where he's at because I haven't heard I mean, I've been under a rock. I'm not saying like, where'd you go, Robert Henry Johnson? I've been right here. I've been fully under a rock for like decades because of moving away and having kids in grad school and all the reasons. But I'm, I'm glad you mentioned his name.
1: Yes, and you know he's fully still around. In fact, I met him while dancing with Joanna Highgood. So that feeling of refuge to be able to make work, to be myself, to have a place where, you know, I I didn't have to make a great work or a masterpiece. I just had to make work. I just could, you know, be an artist was really something that took the trajectory of where I was as a thinker and as a mover into a place that I could just create. And That space also comes with theater companies and musicians. It comes with all these different things. So fast forward, the election, George Floyd, the pandemic, what I saw in the San Francisco dance community was a lot of response to it, but a response to it before even I myself could even feel anything or cry. It was just like overwhelming, the phone calls, the emails, the the letters, the the solidarity of statements. I was just like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, everybody. I understand that we need to respond, but it felt so reactionary in a way that sort of brought me to this place of, again, I need sanctuary and I need refuge, and I'm sure other artists of color do too. So prior to the pandemic happening, Push was already sort of, you know, looking at a feasibility study and forming one and creating this feasibility study. Ironically with Victor Goetzman, who was the ODC, former ODC executive director. And I knew his wife really well, No Hayashi. She and I worked together for about five years. And I saw that he was doing space planning and I was like, hey, Victor, why don't we apply for this San Francisco, San Francisco Arts Commission grant and do some space you know, space planning? If we don't get this grant, we won't do it. And miraculously, we got this grant. And <laughs> it was funny because, you know, you get to listen in on the comments from people. And it felt like it was on, it, you know, Kush was hanging by a thread getting this grant, but we were able to get it. And the sanctuary idea came about through this process because i learned so much about this process it just wasn't space planning it was really about this whole generational wealth gap this whole exclusion you know in the talks of you know being able to speak about expansion for your dance company as well as you know generating revenue for it that for years, I had never known about nor have I had anybody, you know, before me ever speak about too. It was like, wow, these are the conversations that dance companies, theater companies of color really don't necessarily get to have. The grants out there aren't just, you know, $50, they're more like $700,000 for acquisition. And so, It's a huge leap, it's a huge jump, and this was sort of a turning point too. Because, yes, I could go into this with just well, Push Dance Company needs a home, we need their own studio, we need rehearsal space, we've been nomadic, we've been working out of Soma, we've been working out of you know Fillmore Western Edition, and so forth and so on. But something about what was going on in our nation. And the sort of reckoning and the resistance, and everybody, you know, telling me to be resilient again, that bootstrap sort of like pull it up feeling. I don't know if there's a BIPOC sanctuary in San Francisco, but I'm going to make one and I'm going to make it a place where people can just rest. I want there to be practices that are restorative and reparative, and I want people to be supported when they're making their work like I was. Because I know what that feels like and I can see that for everybody else. I really think that this is something that can happen. And I'm not saying that, you know, white people aren't invited, but what I'm saying is think about, you know, when you step into that space, are you taking up time? Are you, are you supporting? Are you there because you're there because um, people of color heal you or are you there to really take part in something that is about helping them heal? Because that's what I kind of felt like, you know, the solidarity statements where it was like, we need to heal and we need to repair this broken relationship. And we, you know, you know we, we see what we, we did, but... We don't know where to go from here. And that's not the kind of conversations that I want to have for this particular space. This particular space is for people of color to bring their grievances and to be heard and to be seen. And this is a space where we can start moving forward towards looking at each individual person and, you know, just assisting them with getting to a place where they can be creative again because we're always sort of in this like post-dramatic stress syndrome type feeling where these sort of like microaggressions in the dance world they happen and it's repetitive and I'm all about patterns I love looking at patterns and this is what I teach people you know I always say look for um who was the man who who made up the habitu or the habitus it was um Bordeaux Bourdieu, yeah. Ber- ber- wait, how do you say it?
0: Uh, Pierre Bourdieu. Bourdieu. Bourdieu.
1: Okay. <laughs> the habits, right? The habits. I'm always loving the patterns because oftentimes, you know, people say to me, well, what is wrong with gentrification? Well, what is wrong with building all these condos no one can afford? And I just say, well, look at the pattern. What is the pattern? How, how can we see that this is affecting people? in the same sort of ways. So that's, you know, sort of the overarching look of the BIPOC sanctuary. It's this anchor space for people to create. And also let's put different types of dance other than European dances like ballet in particular. (laughs) And also, you know, some forms of modern dance at the center of training. So. This is also a space where push is gonna build a conservatory. And it's scary though, because you know, what we're really saying is that this is going to be ethnographic dance and this is going to be the basis of your training. And you are going to get jobs by training here for two years. It's a two year program. And trust me, when you leave, you will get a job, but we're not going to, you know, center whiteness, as the basis for training.
0: So it's more than just a space. Well, first of all, where are you at now with it? Like what's, what's happening with the space idea and then the program, how is it designed? Who teaches
1: in it? Yes, these are all good questions that need answered, aren't they? That's so funny you should mention, but here's what I'll say is that we have found a space and it's in the SOMA district. So what we're looking at is working with CAST and we are going to potentially move into the space at the CAS Building. Where we are right now is that we've sort of submitted a letter of interest, and we're talking about what sort of lease agreement we should have and how it should all work. But I really believe in this space because it's being donated by the Brookfield Company, which is building that 5M project and properties out there in SOMA and they've sort of like secured this whole building which is i call it the cast building but um historically it's been called the dimster building and the history behind it was that that building used to be for i believe printing and the chronicle was somehow involved with that can you tell me what cast means for those who don't know cast is the community um, arts stabilization trust it is currently spearheaded by Moy ing who is amazing and one of my good friends that i've known for a while actually i, I danced with her husband thais for is there and we've been working with their real estate agent caroline so i believe that um, this space really needs people of color in it Unfortunately, it is part of this sort of sordid history of creating developments in communities. And recently, I got a chance to get a hold of the, you know, San Francisco Public Health Department's report on how it's going to affect that community environmentally and also in transportation wise. So many people are involved in those conversations already that I don't even need to like jump in and say that. I've done anything extraordinary. So Soma Filipinas is there. There's also this, as we know, like, you know, the Fulton Street Festival and the Leather Culture is there. And then there's a transgender community that is there. There's also, you know, not a huge amount, but a significant amount of African-American residents that are there as well. So all these folks are impacted by this particular development. I think that by them giving this building to CAST is going to significantly stabilize our rent in that area. So I will say that we're moving in. I mean, I'm not picking out paint colors just yet, but (laughs) this is what we're looking at. This is the space that we're looking at. Of course, we're gonna have community meetings and info sessions about it because again, it's just, you know, after doing all these dances about gentrification and all this research, I want to make sure that the community feels good about and safe about having this BIPOC sanctuary in that space.
0: Tell me a little bit about this program. Like, is it a certification program? Like, would it be the kind of thing you do after you have a college degree or high school
1: or anytime, or I'm really, really interested in that the two-year training program. Right now, the name is Push Conservatory. I know that's not very creative, but that's what it is at the moment. It is going to be certified and um, we're working towards getting it certified because I think it's important to be able to have a dance program that one doesn't break the bank. I know that I went to a four-year school for dance and I just thought to myself, did I really need to pay that much money (laughs) just to, you know, get myself into debt because I wanted to be a dancer. So the two-year program we thought was enough and it's for 18 to 26. So if you're wondering, is this for me? Should I go into dance? Then I think, you know, if you're 18, going into college is perfect for you. If you have graduated from a four-year university and you want to go ahead and deepen your practice and dance and get more, I guess, technique that wasn't provided to you, wonderful. This is also for you. Or if you're in school and you again want to just, you know, re-examine a different way of moving, this would be wonderful. So the folks that are will be teaching in it. We're going to have the Dunham technique, so Catherine Dunham technique, which is so funny because me and my friends agree that this is the hardest technique out there. It is a fusion technique of ballet, modern, Haitian, Caribbean, and you know a lot of dances from the African diaspora. There will also be jazz. We said you know we're not centering whiteness, but there will be ballet classes. There will also be, I'm hoping, gyrokinesis as well as elements of improv and theater. So it's gonna be a very like holistic, well-rounded program. We're gonna start off, you know, like 9 a.m. with conditioning classes and yoga. Um, And then from there, we're gonna go straight into the modern dance techniques. So there will also be advanced contemporary. There also will be a class called professional study, which will bring in a lot of master teachers from everywhere else and hopefully some people who have dance companies and it's going to be really heavily guided in terms of it's going to be performance-based and I just think it's really important for people to have experience on stage and oftentimes you know if you've been a hip-hop dancer and you're looking to move into the concert dance realm that you know sometimes you're sort of placed in the back you're hidden off to the side This is not that program. You're going to be up in the forefront. You're going to be right. I won't say, you know, center stage, but you're going to be in the center of everything that's happening in this program. You know, the type of teachers that we're looking for, I I can't say quite yet who's on the roster, but we have a short list of people that we would love to see teaching in this program. And there are so many dance companies out here in the Bay area that will have dancers to hire. This is the place where if you're looking for something outside of, you know, the traditional like concert dance realm, there are so many dance companies out here that are offering jobs. So I'm excited. I'm very excited for this program. The dance company looked around at the nation and we saw what was not being offered and where we could fill and bridge this gap. I also want to um, give credit to Dr. Khalifu Khalifuul-samari who's had a very long history here in the Bay Area and she also was a part of advising this program. I mean if I'm, I'm open to suggestions if you know anyone out there you know has anything else they want to see in this program let me know. I think that you know this two-year conservatory hopefully will sort of revive the Bay Area as we know Mills College Um, We've seen that whole program just hopefully not, I'm still hopeful that it won't disappear, but we've seen what has happened at most college. I know that other programs are getting cut left and right when it comes to dance. So I think that the investment in this, that this program is definitely a priority and our goal is to make it last and potentially with The space that we're looking at having a landlord that you know understands that we are artists, and we are coming out of a pandemic and possibly going into a recession, that this program can definitely be a lasting place. I don't want it to be just around for a few years and, you know, for people to look back and say, remember that BIPOC sanctuary? Wasn't that amazing? That was so great. What happened to that? I want this to be something that, you know, is part of human evolution, that we can have these spaces. Because, you know, going into white-led spaces, we know as people of color what we're entering into. And, like anything, we have our good days and our bad days. (laughs) So we just, we just keep it at that, but we hold so much in. And I think what's interesting is that, um, working with the dancing around race group that if you don't know what that is, we're coming out with a website and more information to come Dancing around race is a group that meets regularly to discuss issues around dance and race and that we're always constantly just dancing around it. We never really get to speak about it or talk about it.
0: I just remember being at a couple of dancing around race events and sometimes even in the event that's trying not to dance around it, it gets danced around. Or interestingly, what I find happens sometimes lately is that people are getting better at talking about race, but still having trouble talking about dance in Mm. relation to race. There's like a double, triple, quadruple silencing happening. You mentioned being a quiet kid, but dancers are exhorted, concert dancers, studio trained, are exhorted to keep quiet, the whole shut up and dance story. And so interestingly, you'll have people talking about race and then sort of shyer about specific examples, of microaggressions or things like that, but also of interrogating techniques themselves, really asking questions because sometimes you just love the technique that was also abusive, you know, and sometimes you still hold the, the bias toward a particular look. And, you know, it's, so it's a really, it's, it's a, I love that Dancing Around Race exists and I'm glad it keeps going and I'm excited for a new website and whatever I can learn about and be part of. The last thing I want to ask you before you go is, do you want to say something about
1: your September event? The, the event that we have coming up is going to be a site-specific dance, and the in-person performances are August 28th through the 29th, and it's going to be at the 447 Minna location. This is potentially the BIPOC sanctuary home. We're going to be doing um, a piece called Emya Expedition. And this piece is a two-year research work that is graciously funded by the Brandon Foundation. And so this is a, another sort of Afrofuturistic piece of mine that I'm going to be working on for the next two years. And it's going to start right there. We're going to move around. We're going to be looking at migration. Goodness, I know. We started off talking about migration. We're going to be looking at migration. And then there will be a digital series, September 16th through October 16th that has special interviews as well as other sort of like clips that people may not have seen in terms of the making of the piece.
0: And right now, race is dancing I'm and kidding. you can't see it. <laughs> That's the limitation of the podcast medium. I wish you the best of everything and we'll be in touch. I mean, I want to know more and more about this project and I want to help in any way I can. Thank you so much.
1: All right, Take care.
0: You too. Dance Cast is produced through ODC by me, Sima Belmar, Sophie Lenanger, and Chloe Zimberg. Show notes are available at ODC.dance slash stories, where you can also find a transcript of this podcast. Until next time, dance on.